You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible, you can use a device or phone or something like that and go to Matthew 18. Or you can use the Pew Bible there on the ground next to you. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that as a little gift for you. And you can turn to page 873. 873. Well, we're in our series on the hard sayings of Jesus, where we're really learning what it means to follow Jesus in the various areas of life. And he gives us some very challenging, uh, sometimes even sounding confusing statements. But really what Jesus is doing is he's reminding us of the often radical nature of following a crucified and risen Nazarene what it really looks like to follow Jesus and to have allegiance to him in our entire life. And no matter how hard or confusing or complex the saying is from Christ, that the risen Christ is going to empower us to live for him as we follow him by faith. And today's hard saying really is a doozy. That we're to forgive 70 times seven. So as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word, and we'll begin in verse 21. And in verse 21, the Holy Spirit tells us, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now to know your forgiveness, 
to experience it in such a way that we are now the people who are forgivers. Help us now. A lot of us, Lord, you know our hearts. We are harboring unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, resentment. And some of us, Lord, you know here we have not been forgiven by you. Or we're unsure if you've forgiven us of all of our sins. Lord, those that are here today, would you move in their heart that they would receive the forgiveness of Christ? Help us now, King Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our family, we, we're like every other Bible Belt American family that loves a good snow cone in the summer. And if you're here in Texas, you live here all the time, you know it's a year-round affair. And the snow, the, uh, the snow cone that's the Sour Patch flavor at Bahama Bucks really is amazing. And a few months ago, we're in the drive-thru there at Bahama Bucks. We get four snow cones. It's $88. And <laughs> as we're getting them, every one of them is wrong. It, oh, it's tragic. It's the wrong size. We get it. We got to send it back. And my daughter gets like a combination of flavors. It's wrong. She gets ice cream in the bottom because the flavors aren't enough. You got to have ice cream too. And so they didn't have ice cream. And we're sending it back. It's just all of these problems, combo of things happening. And I'm starting to get really riled up. I'm starting to get hot at this snow cone place. And I can't believe this. I mean, how hard is it? You just put the stuff on. And I'm starting to get upset. And one of my children in the back yells under their breath. as the kind of yell that you can do under your breath where only people around you can hear. Curse you, Bahama Bucks. <laughs> and I thought, it's getting bad if we're invoking curses on a snow cone establishment. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, why am I getting so worked up? over some high school kid putting syrup on ice. This is not a big deal. The kid was genuinely sorry, and he's not even making them. He's just handing them to me, but I'm getting mad at him. I'm getting upset. I'm holding this little thing over his head. I mean, it was shocking that I could get so grudgy over something so small. And what's alarming to me about that is that if I can get so worked up over nonsense, What happens to my heart when serious offenses happen to me? What happens to my heart and my soul when sins are committed against us? Peter, what he's doing today is he opens up the can of forgiveness and he's really asking the Lord, when can I hold something over someone's head? When is enough enough? And he invites us to look at the unexpectedness of forgiveness. Look at verse 21. Then Peter approached Jesus, approaches him and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, you got to know this is about brother or sister. So Peter is asking not about unbelievers. How do we treat them? Though there's other passages about that. How do we treat our enemies? There's other passages about that. Peter is asking, how do Christians handle this inter-family sins against one another? A fellow disciple, a fellow member of the body of Christ. And so you got to know Peter's probably gotten on the other 11 guys. Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive what's his name? You know who I'm talking about. How many times do I got to put up with this guy? This really reminds us that Christians don't pretend to be perfect. Peter already recognizes this. So we're going to sin against each other. How do we handle this? We repent. We ask for forgiveness. We give forgiveness. We grow and we're changing. So on one level, Peter recognizes something that we often don't recognize, that we shouldn't be shocked when we sin against each other. Because we're not in eternity yet. 
But what we often do, we often think, well, I don't sin against people, so how should I deal when they sin against me? Because I know people are going to sin against me, but me, I, I don't do that. But, so we're shocked when people sin against us, as though we don't sin against other people. Peter is inviting us into how do we really deal with this? And so Peter asks a very practical question. How do we love one another when we sin against each other? How do we love one another when we sin against each other? And Peter really, he wants to know about the depths of forgiveness. Look at what he asks. Lord, how many times shall I forgive? He knows, he doesn't ask, should I forgive? He knows I'm supposed to forgive. And you know, if you've been around church for a little bit, even longer than today, you know Christians have a core value and love. It's a pillar of Christianity that you can be forgiven. So Peter knows that, but he wants to know how many times, the depths. What's the limit here? When is enough enough? When, when have I done my part not to forgive this person anymore? Rabbis at this time, around this exact time, they taught three times was enough. Once, twice, three strikes, you're done. You don't have to forgive him anymore. So Peter, after being around Jesus for a little bit now, he has to know that's not going to be enough for Jesus. Because especially if you've ever read Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus often say in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, but I say to you, You've heard it said that just murder is wrong. You know what I say to you? Even if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. So Jesus is chronically saying, you've heard it said, but I say. So Peter's got to know, okay, rabbis say three times. Jesus is going to pull his thing and say, you've heard it said three, but I say to you. So Peter, he's been around Jesus. He's, I'm going to get ahead of Jesus here. I'm going to double it. And I'm going to add one. Infinity plus one, that's what I'm going to do. So Jesus, seven's got to be enough, right? Because the rabbis say three, but sevens, I mean, it's a holy number. It's got perfection, seven days in a week. I mean, there's a lot of things going in Peter's favor here. Seven's probably enough, right? And we've got to also pay attention to the word sin here. How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? A clear violation of God's word. We we can be guilty of glossing over that word sin and we typically substitute maybe a less offensive word. Sin is not a popular word in our world and sadly in a lot of churches, the word sin is, is never used. We use less offensive, more generic words like uh, mess up or uh, a wrong. Now sin is a mess up and sin is a wrong, but sometimes we just substitute these more generic, less offensive words. But we gotta, we gotta stop that. Because when we substitute these less offensive, these more generic words, wrong, I mess up, what we end up doing is we also hollow out words like grace. And we end up hollowing out words like forgiveness. And we rip the words like mercy of their real power. We have to call sin, sin. So grace can be grace. And we have to call sin, sin, so forgiveness can be forgiveness and mercy can be mercy. And what we've got to see too is that forgiveness isn't just getting over stuff. To forgive someone isn't to minimize the pain and the wounds that happen. Jesus' hands and feet show us to forgive is not to minimize pain. Forgiveness isn't just sweeping things under some cosmic rug. It is a real relational transaction. It's a reconciling of personal accounts. The word really means a back to wholeness, to release, to send away, to zero out. It's costly. 
This is what is always unexpected about forgiveness is that it costs us something. So Peter's asking, is seven enough? How many times do I have to forgive a friend, forgive a spouse, forgive a church member? Seven, right? What does Jesus say? Verse 22. Jesus answers, I tell you, oh boy, (laughs) that alone tells you, uh, you're wrong, Peter. I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Not seven, Peter. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, it's 70 times seven. You think seven's good? Why don't I just take a number that's bigger than that number and let's cram them together and let's blow it up. 70 times seven. Now, already our inward legalist is going, oh, 490, so that's it. (laughs) No, that's not it. Jesus is taking this concept and saying, no one would really calculate up to 490. No husband would be like, hey, dear, you know, that's 489. You're getting really close now. (laughs) Jesus is saying bigger than what you would ever remember. Bigger than you can calculate. And the reason this is a hard saying is because this isn't natural to us. We want to keep records. We want to keep accounts. We naturally want to resist grace. So Jesus takes Peter 7, the number of perfection and wholeness, and hits it with a bigger number. And listen, beloved, it would be wrong to think here that Jesus is expanding our borders of forgiveness. Jesus is not expanding our borders for forgiveness. Jesus is exploding them. Do not think Jesus is just expanding the borders of forgiveness. Jesus is exploding them. Because forgiveness, real forgiveness, is borderless. It's without limit. As far as the east is from the west. Deeper than the depths of the sea. I don't know if you've ever been in an elevator and wondered about its weight limit. Get a little scary sometimes. You get a lot of people in there, a lot of luggage, and you see the little sign. You're like, oh, brother, it's creaking and cracking and all this stuff. We're familiar with limits. We operate on limits, speed limits, and we just know limits all the time. But with grace, there really is no limit. There is no max tonnage when it comes to forgiveness. Not three times, not seven times, but to a number that no one would keep track of because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't keep an account. Love doesn't keep a record. No loving husband is inwardly tabulating his wife's sins against him. And no born-again wife is constantly running the analytics of her husband's sins. If you enjoy the mugshots of celebrities and you enjoy the spiritual mugshots of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to wonder if you really know God's grace, if you really know God's mercy. Because love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love rejoices with the truth. That love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. And I know that just because of life on this earth, there's a little sidebar comment we need to make right now about forgiveness because we, we get confused and we're not sure what to do here, especially when it comes to forgiveness and criminal behavior. If someone breaks the law, they are sinning. And there are consequences. We can forgive the sin committed, but we are in no place to handle laws that are broken. Crimes committed. We don't gloss that over. God has given the government for that task. The law and the police, when they're doing their job correctly, they are a common grace to you and to me. 
Romans 13 tells us that even Christians who break the law, they are not above the law and they should be afraid of the law. Romans 13 says about the law and the government, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, speaking to Christians, if you do wrong, be afraid. You break the law, be afraid. Because the government, it does not carry the sword for no reason. It is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Just because you're a Christian and you forgive doesn't mean you don't call the cops. Forgiveness doesn't mean you aren't free to call the police. And there are some crimes that are committed against us. You don't have to press charges. You stole my bike. Okay, whatever. You return. It's been restored. There's some crimes committed. We don't have to press charges. But there are some where there is real harm done to a person. Bodily harm. Listen, a lot of churches and a lot of Christian communities, they can really get this fuzzy. Oh, I got to forgive, so I can't call. No, if you are in a physically abusive, dangerous situation, you call the police. Call them. And if we hear about it and you don't want to call them, we will call them for you, in which we have done. Call the police. Actually, that person needs the police called on them. God wants it to happen. I believe that God wants it to happen from Romans 13. It is God's servant for their ultimate good against the one who does wrong. So forgiveness, you can forgive, but you can also call the police. And the second way that we kind of get this a a little fuzzy here is that forgiveness, sometimes people say, I can't forgive because they're just, it's a free pass and they're just gonna keep sinning. Listen, forgiveness is not a free pass to the unrepentant. Repentance, this genuine turning, that's when forgiveness is offered. But if a person is unrepentant, if your spouse or a a business partner that's also a believer and y'all are having a lot of conflict and they're unrepentant, what you do is exactly what the Bible says to do. You tell a Christian friend and you go meet meet with them together. And if they won't listen to that, you bring another Christian friend. If they won't listen to that, then you bring in the pastors in the church and you get that situation involved. You don't just sit idly by and go, well, they're just unrepentant. No, Jesus says you bring all of, you bring the Christian community together. Forgiveness isn't a free pass to the unrepentant. As Jesus says in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times, genuinely saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Must Why must? That is a strong word that you can't ignore. Why must? Because when you know the bigness of forgiveness, you will. So Jesus lays out for us the bigness of forgiveness, and he gives us a mini movie. He gives us a featurette of forgiveness in verses 23 through 27, this parable. Look at verse 23. I love that Jesus doesn't, you know, give us a flow chart of how forgiveness works. He tells us a story. He gives us a picture For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, we'll talk about that in a second, was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. And his servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, I'll pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion and released him forgave him the loan. So Jesus tells us a story about a king, a ruler, who's ready to settle his business dealings. It's time to get all of my 
purchase orders. Let's get everything in order. It's time. And one of his servants is brought to him and look at the debt, 10,000 talents. Now we hear that, we're like, what does that mean? Jesus is doing something spectacular here. At this time in the Roman Empire, 10,000, that is the highest Roman numeral, the highest numerical value you could give. And you hear that in the book of Revelation. This is the word myriad. There was a myriad of myriads, 10,000s of 10,000s. He'd bring a myriad of angels, 10,000 angels. It's just the biggest Roman placeholder at this time. And now the word talent, that is the highest currency. So Jesus takes the highest placeholder and the highest currency and says, let's run these two things together. This is how much debt this guy owed. And, if, and this is big bucks, giant amount of money. What's a talent? One ta- just one is the salary that a laborer would earn in about 20 years. One talent equals 20 years of money. This guy doesn't owe one talent. This guy doesn't own 500 talents. This guy is in debt for 10,000 talents. So that is 10,000 sets of 20 years of salary. This guy's in big trouble. Some of us are already getting a little nervous. Man, that's a lot of money. You take the modern numbers and you crunch them all together. It's about $6 billion. $6 billion. This is enormous. And now it's time to pay. And he's brought before the king. The king says, all right, what do you got? You got some profit statements. You got some revenue sharing. Where are we at? He's got nothing. Zero. He doesn't have any profit, no revenue. In fact, he doesn't have any of the money left. He's lost all of it. He doesn't have a copper coin to give the guy. It's gotten so bad that now he has to sell everything he has. His entire life has to be repoed so he can just all be given back to the king. No revenue, no nothing. Here's some of the money we've made, zero. How do you get that much money and have nothing to show for it? How do you lose $6 billion? Here's what we know about this guy who's in this massive debt. He's a failure. This is what Jesus is showing us. This guy failed. This guy's a complete and utter failure. He has nothing to show for it. He has fallen way, way, way short of the amount. I mean, do you see the connection Jesus is making? This guy is a failure. And we are spiritual failures. We are not perfect. We are sinners. We can't fix ourselves. We mess up. We sin. We do wrongs. You know, all those kinds of words. Sin is a mess up. Sin is a wrong. We sin against God. We can't improve ourselves to even last longer than a few months or even half of a January once a year. We are spiritually bankrupt. Sinners, billions in debt to God and nothing worthwhile to show him. Just lint in our pockets and maybe some dollar bills crumpled that a Coke machine won't even take. This servant fell way short of the account. Jesus is making the connection to us that we have fallen way short because all have sinned. Every one of us in this room. And we fall short of the glory of God. We are in trouble. Deserving the eternal dungeon. The servant is in trouble, having to be sold, everything ripped from his life, but he seeks mercy. Look at verse 26. 
you see the bigness of forgiveness here. The servant fell face down. He's laying on the ground, face in the dirt before the king and says, be patient with me. I'm sorry, I'll pay everything back. And look at what happens. Verse 27, the master of that servant, the king had compassion. Compassion. He released him, forgave him the loan. This is incredible. This guy owes $6 billion and the king, his heart melts for him. This, is, this would not happen in our world. If Bernie Madoff went to the president and be like, man, I'm sorry. I, I'll try to pay it all back. And the president wouldn't be moved with compassion. We'll pardon you. No. This doesn't happen in the world, but in the kingdom of heaven, which this is compared to, the king's heart is moved towards this man. It connects with this guy's heart. And he doesn't, look, the king doesn't say, okay, you begged me, fine, but let's get a payment plan together. I'm gonna put you on probation. We're gonna check in every quarter. He just says, verse 27, he released him, forgave him the loan. It's paid it's done. It's forgiven. It's in full. It's covered. Don't worry about it. It's remarkable. He's just released of it all. And you got to know that probably all the time that he's been working on this business deal with the king, that he knows I've got nothing to show. I've lost it all. Walking around with the burden. Should I run out of town? I'm going to hide. I'm not going to return his emails. I'm just going to avoid him. And then now this giant $6 billion burden is lifted off of his back. And what do you think this servant does? He's going to go out and turn into like Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of Christmas story. He's going to give Tiny Tim a big turkey and all these kinds of things. No, because that's fantasy. This is more like reality. What happens? He finds a servant. Verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, a, what Peter would say at the beginning, a brother or sister who owed him a hundred denarii. Now this, this is not an insignificant amount of money. This is a lot. This is about a hundred days work owes it to him and says, hey, it's time to pay up. And he grabs him, verse 28, and starts choking him. He's extorting him. He's getting violent with him. You owe me money. Pay it back. He demands his fellow servant pay. 100 days when he's just been forgiven 10,000 sets of 20 years. And the guy can't. And just like him, the guy begs for mercy, says the exact same things that he said. But look at verse 30. But he wasn't willing. He wasn't willing. He could, but he's not willing. We can forgive, but oftentimes we're not willing. And the other servants hear about it and they tell the king, and now verse 32, the king summons this servant who's been forgiven this 10,000 talents. And the king says to him, you wicked servant, wicked you let that word rest on you, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Look at verse 33. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant, your brother or sister, as I had mercy on you? That's the key for us. That's the key. You should have had mercy. As I had mercy on you, we should have mercy towards others as God has had mercy on us. Why do we forgive without borders? Why 70 times seven? Not just because that's what Christians do. 
You got to remove that from your vocabulary. Well, I should do that because, you know, that's what Christians do. That's not motivation enough. That won't last. God says, you should have mercy to one another because I had great mercy towards you. We're to be motivated by the 2,400 carat mercy of God's grace to us. That our massive debt, our massive billion dollar sins against God have all been forgiven. And this is what makes Christianity so amazing is that you can be really forgiven by God. This is what flips us around and upside down and leaves Christians slack-jawed by grace that I'm really forgiven. That God has really released me from my sins. And that Jesus' blood has made me whole. And So how could I be stingy with it now? How could those who have been washed in Jesus' blood, how could we be stingy towards someone else? The cross of Christ, him dying for your sins, and him rising for your life, does that stir you? It should move you to have compassion towards others. It should actually make you more like the king whose image you are being transformed into to want to be gracious and to want to be merciful because you know that the wages of sin that you've earned is death, but that Jesus died for you, that Jesus came to absorb your penalty. As Paul says in Colossians 1.14, that in him we have redemption, we have freedom, we have release, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, the living Jesus the living Jesus in heaven right now wants you to see God's great compassion towards you. The living Christ wants you to see God's compassion towards you right now. That your lifetime of sin, your secret sins, your thoughts, your attitudes, your public sins, and an incalculable number of sins against God. And yet God looked on you with compassion that God looked on you and that Jesus died for you and that Jesus had mercy on you and that by faith in Jesus alone, you really are forgiven and made new, released, forgiven because Christ's blood was shed for you. So have you received it? Do you really know God's forgiveness? Has God really forgiven you? It can happen today if you believe that you can receive forgiveness through the death of Christ for your sins and have new life by his resurrection, all you got to do is believe that Christ did that for you and you're forgiven. And that's why, Christians, we can forgive 70 times 7. Because how could we not be generous with forgiveness when God has been so generous to us? How could you not? As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, just like this king, forgiving one another, because that's what Christians do. No, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Just as, this is the model, this is the template. The gospel is never disconnected from daily life. Jesus died to reconcile us to God, yes, but also Jesus died to reconcile us to one another. That when a husband sins against his wife and he can go to her on the basis of Christ himself saying, please forgive me. 
knowing that sin's been paid for and that wife cannot withhold, but that wife can forgive. That husband can forgive. That child can forgive his father, can forgive his mother. That friends in a missional community can forgive one another because they know, just as God has forgiven me, so I forgive you, released. That's our template. The gospel's our template. How do I forgive the situation? What do I do? The gospel's our template. In fact, when we forgive each other, we become little theater companies of the gospel. We put it on display. We put on a little production of the gospel of grace in our relationships when we forgive each other. Mercy was received, mercy's given. When we show mercy, we show compassion. It's because of the great compassion God has given us. So who do you need to forgive? Who have you not forgiven? And you know it. The Spirit's bringing that name, that face, that situation right to your mind. Maybe you've forgiven with words, but it hasn't been from the heart. And you hear people say, well, they don't deserve it. Of course they don't. That's why it's called mercy. And if you think you deserve God's mercy, I doubt you have it. If you think you deserve God's forgiveness, I doubt you have it. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the gospel of the kingdom is like. Great forgiveness given again and again and again. Great compassion given, and then it's given out again and again and again. A compassionless Christianity is a counterfeit Christianity. And a Christianity that withholds forgiveness is not real Christianity. We must see our debt to God, our inability to pay, and God's mercy to meet it. But when you are unwilling to forgive a spouse or to forgive a friend, when you refuse delivery on forgiveness and you don't sign off on it, you blaspheme the kingdom of heaven. Church, it is a blasphemy to not forgive a fellow disciple of Christ. You commit high treason against God when you think you don't have to forgive. I mean, it's high treason and a blasphemy because we think the sins people commit against us, these are greater than the ones that we commit against God. So we put ourselves above God saying, yeah, fine, God forgives you. I'm not forgiving you. It's blasphemy. We're saying God's standards are too low. God let me off the hook, but I'm not letting you off the hook. God forgave you by the blood of Christ? That's great. But you have, you're a fool if you think I'm going to forgive you. It's satanic. You need to feel the horror of withholding forgiveness from someone, even faking forgiveness and giving counterfeit forgiveness as Jesus highlights the seriousness of forgiveness in the text. Remember the unforgiving servant? He's choking his fellow servant and won't forgive him. So Jesus is showing, look at what we do towards a brother or sister of Christ when we don't forgive them. We begin to, he throws them in jail. We begin extorting one another. When you don't forgive someone and you withhold forgiveness, you become a member of a satanic cartel. You join the mafia. And you start breaking people's spiritual knees and extorting them. When you cold shoulder your spouse, when you ignore them, they said they're sorry, forgive me, and you roll over in a huff. 
You're holding it over their head. You're, you're squeezing them like a mob boss, cutting them off, threatening them until you feel like they've paid it back. That's why Jesus says, you wicked servant, verse 32. It's wicked. That is of the devil. It is not of the kingdom. You wicked servant. That's what Jesus would say to us as we withhold forgiveness from someone. It's wicked. I remember being in fourth grade and this kid that my mom would babysit every day. We were about the same age and we were in my room and I had this awesome Houston Rockets basketball goal in my room. The kind that would hang on your door. And he was running and you're just supposed to shoot it. You're not supposed to hang on the rim. Well, he hangs on the rim, rips the rim right off. And I yelled at him, I hate you. You ruin everything. I never want to see you again. He's crying, saying, I'm sorry. And I told my mom, I don't ever want to play with him again. I don't ever want to see him again. That was wickedness. I wasn't justified to do that. And that was a little fourth grade, Jeff. And you've got your own little fourth grade you stories. And you know what? We do the exact same thing today, except we're just a lot better at hiding it. You've developed the skills at hiding it. And Jesus says, it's wickedness. As Christians who know God's mercy, we should show mercy as God has shown us. Otherwise, if not, look at verse 34. Because the servant wouldn't forgive, because the king is angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. This is a kind of a parallel into the eternal wrath of God so he could pay everything that was owed. Verse 35, now Jesus ends the parable and now he looks at us and says, so also my heavenly father will do to you. Jesus speaking right to us, no one else, right to you and me. Jesus says, so my father will do to you unless you forgive his brother or sister from your heart. Jesus took this hard saying up a notch. We can be so casual with forgiveness and uh, we're withholding forgiveness. Jesus says it's wickedness and my father, he will not make it into the kingdom if you will not forgive. Jesus doesn't want anyone here saying, well, I can't forgive that person because they're rude or they're probably gonna do it again. I just don't know if they really are you know, being genuine. I can't do that. Jesus says, no, you need to hear me here that unless you forgive, hell is waiting for you. Because clearly you did not experience forgiveness. Because clearly you did not experience mercy and compassion. You try to swindle the king and you cannot swindle God. If you don't forgive, it means you haven't been forgiven. Because forgiven people forgive. Do you know Jesus' death for your sins? You should have mercy as he has had mercy on you. If so, forgive 70 times seven. And it should be more serious to you than some silly snow cone from Bahama Box. This is the kingdom of heaven. And this is Christ himself, his mercy, flowing through us to give mercy to others. Forgive as we've been forgiven. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.